Hello, welcome to GradCast. We have another exciting episode for you today. We are the official radio and podcast show of the Society of Graduate Students. I will be one of your hosts tonight. I am Yumin Chen, and joining me as co-host, we have Elizabeth. Hello. Hello there. And our guest today comes all the way from the Masters of Public History program. We have Kestra Greer. Hello, Kestra. Hello. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming. Um, so I guess, first of all, uh, could you tell us a little bit? I mean, I know history, but, uh, but what is public history and what does sort of a degree in that entail? Well, public history is really um, focused on how we present history to the public as academics and like that crossroads between what happens in a, in a university like Western versus um, what the average person on the street thinks of as history and that there can often be a pretty big gap there. Mm -hmm. So um, since like the 80s, um, the program of public history has been existing to try and bridge that gap. So um, the skills I'm learning in my course are a lot of um, how to um, talk about commemoration, um, especially with statues and stuff nowadays, there's a uh, large debate around that. Um, how we talk about reparation in museums and how we deal with artifacts that have been stolen and uh, how policy about that should work. So um, public his history is, um, it's designed to work in a job market that isn't purely history. Mm -hmm. um, so the ideal job for any of us is to work in the federal government. Um, that's oh, okay. the dream for all, most of us, I should say. Um, but yes, I'm, it's hard to explain. I'm, I'm so deep into it that it's like, what, what is history anymore? That is a great expl explanation. And, and uh, what is history is an interesting question because it's always changing. But um, Kestra, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about what you specifically are looking at concerning public history. Is there a research passion or research interest you want to share with the, share with the listeners today? Um, whew, that is a dangerous, dangerous question to ask a historian. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am really interested in social history and medical history. Um, social history is like the history of little people. It's not like the history of wars. It's the history of the soldiers. Um, and uh, that's becoming more and more relevant to people as uh, museums realize that even though the history of like World War I sounds really cool and really neat, it, it's hard to connect with it. And it's much easier to connect with a bunch of smaller, more individual stories. So my research um, interests are closer to the smaller, more individual stories that really help us connect with our past and the people there, not as like abstract, um, a monolith of old timiness, but as like human beings who had thoughts and feelings and emotions and had families and wanted the best for those families. So would this be kind of standing in opposition to, I, I guess, traditional ideas of quote unquote, great man history where it's about you know the kings and the generals, the rulers, and the exploits of really rich, famous, powerful people. But instead of that, focusing on all the the more sort of personal details of the day to day average person. Yeah, um, it's not an opposition. We're not in war. All history, all ah. historical research is good historical research if you do it properly. But it's more like um, 
changing where we're focusing or changing where I'm focusing. Mm -hmm. I'm not speaking for all historians, obviously. Um, but like listening to what people actually want from history rather than what we think we they want we want to give them. And um, that really changes how you do history when you're like, okay, this is for a public audience and I need to give them um, both what they want and um, what is relevant to them. Do you have perhaps an example or a story of this kind of history that you found you know, particularly interesting or perhaps something that has inspired you to take a look at this perspective? Oh, um, this is going to sound so odd, but um, so I'm from Prince Edward Island and all my grad student friends just kind of groaned because it's all I ever talk about. Um, <laughs> but there is one doctor, a Dr. McKeeson or McKeeson, it depends on how you spell it. Um, and he was just uh, this one man who over the course of a 70 year uh, career as like the chief public health officer in PEI in the 19th century um, was in charge of a bunch of things from quarantining ships coming into the harbor to the uh, one and only uh, mental health asylum on the island. And um, he made a lot of rough choices um, based on what he had available. And um, it's so easy to look at him as like just this one figure in like the history of uh, mental health abuse in North America or the history of shipping and trading or even just medical history. But he was also um, a poet. Like he wrote in his journal every day and like wrote kind of bad, but still heartwarming poetry. And um, just reading the memoir of his life, I'm like, he was both a part of this huge system of like white male power and like colonialism and um, institutionalism, but he was also a doctor and a person who cared very deeply about his patients. So um, yeah, there's about 20 copies of the book in existence because it's very, very local interest. But if you ever get a copy of it, it's worth a good read. Wow, thank you. So, you know, before we were um, kind of warming up for our show, you were telling us that you had a special interest in cholera. And I'm wondering <laughs> if you would like to share more about that interest and uh, tell us a little bit about um, maybe what you've, what you've um, come to learn about it. Well, cholera is one of my favorite diseases to talk about because it had such a cool, cool story linked with like the history of cholera. And it's obviously the story of Jon Snow and the Broad Street Pump. So cholera is a gastrointestinal disease. Um, if you get it, um, I hate to get blue, but you, you poop yourself to death. <laughs> um, it's a very, very unpleasant way to go. It strikes very quickly. I will, that's all I'll give you. Um, okay. But um, in 1854, um, there was a cholera outbreak starting in London, England. Um, it started in one of the slums uh, in Soho. Uh, Broad Street uh, was the center of this outbreak. And um, if it had spread through the city, thousands upon thousands of people would have died. It was an uncontrolled disease. They're still about 20 years away from germ theory. So uh, people didn't know how it was spread, what was going on. Um, so the government seeing this cholera outbreak coming to light, um, hired this brilliant young doctor, um, John Snow, um, who had had previous experience with the disease. And um, he actually started the field of epide epidemiology right then and there, because he, um, rather than going house to house, like trying to fix the disease person by person, he, he took um, his previous experience with cholera and was like, I cannot save all these people. I, 
it's kind of pointless to even try. And so he just took a map of the area and tried and started pinpointing every single house with a case in it. And he was able to trace the heaviest concentration of cases to Broad Street um, and particularly clustered uh, the 20 houses around one particular pump um, were the heaviest hit. So he was able to map out the disease in a way that um, no one had ever really done before. Um, he took a bird's eye view of it. And so he went down to the Broad Street and um, through a lot of very, very good detective work um, was able to find out that every single person who had had cholera had drunk from the Broad Street pump. Mm. And um, Don't drink from those pumps, lessons learned. <laughs> yeah, don't wash out your cholera infested child's diaper in the pump first. That was how the, um, yes, anyway, public sanitation is a godsend. Um, but uh, yes, the outbreak was started from this pump and it was spreading and spreading. So um, John Snow knew that the civic government wasn't going to act quickly enough to stop it. So um, this absolute mad lad um, <laughs> picked up a very large sledgehammer and knocked the handle off the Broad Street pump, effectively ending the cholera outbreak of 1854 before it claimed hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, he wow. got knighted like the next day and um, <laughs> he is known in, for history as the father of epidemiology. Um, this becomes more and more relevant as you get to 2020. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, just kind of picking up on that, like, obviously we don't get water from pumps and we have sanitation, but like, do you think there's any like overarching lessons that like Jon Snow taught us that we could apply today? Uh, yeah, like changing how we look at diseases and how they spread um, is very, very helpful if you don't know what you're doing. Like um, <laughs> before Jon Snow, um, epidemiology wasn't even a, a field that was studied, like um, studying how diseases spread was just kind of a medical know-how kind of, oh, it's hard to explain, but like. No, you're doing great. <laughs> yeah. Um, before Jon Snow, trying to solve diseases would have been trying to cure the patients, not trying to prevent spread. Um, they had quarantining, obviously, as a medical measure, but other than that, they really didn't have methods for containing diseases. So Jon Snow invented the idea of tracing a disease to try and contain it. And uh, we owe so much to him just for that one act of uh, mapping out the cholera outbreak. Wow. So then is this sort of medical history, like one of your interests, one of your, your sort of passions. And like, how did you get into that? I mean, just your description of, you know, cholera would probably, you know, drive lesser strong-willed people <laughs> to run, you know, screaming for the hills. Well, this is going to sound wildly embarrassing, but um, I absolutely love the podcast Sawbones. Uh, it's oh, me too. by the McElroy family. And I was listening to that in undergrad. I'm like, hey, like, this is history, but it's like real world. It's applicable. It's less theoretical than the stuff I'm getting in second year undergrad. And I was just like, yes, this is actual history and how it actually helps us. So that was kind of what sparked my interest. And then I started reading it and I'm like, oh my God, this is so gross and cool. This is incredible. Because I'm actually secretly a 12 year old boy. <laughs> Oh, and that's a great podcast. I think you've brought up a really important point. History needs to be relevant and it needs to be, um, you know, it needs to be applicable to our lives today. So, um, you know, based on kind of your, your passion for 
uh, learning about cholera. Are you hoping to do any papers on that or were you hoping to take that or is it just a passion project? It's just a passion project. Um, every historian of like the 18th century medical history has written about Jon Snow. He's like one of the canonical saints of yeah. medical history. But um, medical history is kind of what drove me into public history because they intersect super duper well. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, real world history of medical history combined with like public history, public health. It, it's just this Venn diagram of all the things I find cool that other people would be like, okay, Kestra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I have a zillion passion projects. So color is definitely up there. Yeah, Kestra, um, would you mind expanding a little bit? Like, where do you see the, the intersections between public history and medical history? And um, do you see anything perhaps from your coursework, anything you're learning in your degree that might help you, um, I guess, engage the public with something like the history of epidemiology? Uh, well, I think the last year, I'm sorry, I'm gonna talk about the coronavirus. It's just gonna happen. Um, <laughs> I know we're all sick of hearing about it, but I think the last year has really taught us how important public health and like the rest of society are. And medical history is just public history and public health and all that stuff mashed together. So like um, when the pandemic first started, everyone compared it obviously to the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic. Mm -hmm. And we can draw so many very good lessons from that epidemic and what they did right and what they did wrong to help us move forward. So like public history um, is like the history that actually applies to real life. And it's how we actually use history in the real world. And medical history is one of the most useful kinds of history to me because it's not theoretical. It's not um, historiography and 200 years of various white male scholars arguing with each other in the footnotes. It <laughs> is, um, hey, we figured out how to chop off someone's leg and not have them die. And we still use vaguely, vaguely, <laughs> those methods today. Um, like, oh, one of the oldest cures for a cough is um, warm water and honey. It's, it's been in our lexicon for literally hundreds of years, and my mom still gives it to me every time I have a sniffle. Like, yes, yes. Medical history lasts. And the mustard plasters as well. Yeah, it's so true. And, and I think medical history, you're right, because of COVID is, is um, we're constantly looking at like, what can we learn? Um, and so just thinking about like your own interest, your own work, like what do you, what do you, or have you thought about what you might like to do with um, the, the work you're doing now and the degree that you're doing now? Um, right now, um... I'm probably going to morph into a social historian over the next couple of years. Um, medical history is m my passion, but um, it's not it's not easy to have a career as a medical historian outside of very specific museums in specific areas. Mm -hmm. So right now, I'm probably going to morph into some form of social historian focusing on the lives of individuals. There's a lot of really good work being done right now um, with focusing on marginalized voices in the historical world. Um, kind of pulling on the threads that we haven't really pulled on before, the voices of women, the voices of minorities in the historical narrative. We're slowly but surely kind of shifting towards looking at 
not just the people who left records in the censuses, but people who left records elsewhere in diaries and letters that we haven't really looked at before. So um, I don't want to say uncertainties now because, you know, it's that time of year where things are really up in the air, but uh, I'll probably be working um, in Ontario on the history of like women in the oil field and uh, Petrolia, for instance. Oh, wow. Is that something you know about? Because, you know, when we think about Canadian oil fields and oil field workers, uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but uh, I immediately jumped to Alberta. Um, I was not aware that there were significant sort of an, an oil industry in Ontario. Uh, the very first oil spring in the world was started in Lambton County, Ontario. Oh, wow. Wow. I didn't know that. Just yes. next door. Um, this summer, I'll be working with them as part of the Robert Cochran Fellowship, um, working mm -hmm. to help them go through some old artifacts and digitize and transcribe them, which sounds very boring, but it's very, very interesting and I'm very excited. What is involved in kind of transcribing artifacts? Because I hear in my, you know, in, uh, I've heard of transcribing data, but not artifacts. So one of the biggest challenges of bringing um, the voices of people from the past to the present is um, everything is in handwritten cursive. And that might not sound like such a big deal, but um, if you haven't read it before, it's very, very hard to read. So um, one of the most time consuming and some would say tedious jobs uh, that a historian can do is uh, just reading old stuff and typing it out uh, in a born digital format so it can be put online so you can get the content, if not like the page itself with all the water stains and like misspellings on it. So um, really transcribing is exactly what it sounds like. It's typing out in a more accessible format, something that most people couldn't access otherwise. It sort of sounds like you're just um, reading through really, really old doctor's notes and trying to you know, figure out, is that like an R or is that an N or is that like something else <laughs> entirely? Doctors have absolutely nothing on like 17th century letter writers where you had to save every bit of paper. So they just turn the page sideways and write in between the lines. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, because wow. um, paper was so precious, obviously. It's, right. You have to make every single thing by hand and that letter has to go across the Atlantic a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they just um, tip it sideways and write in the margins. Wow. <laughs> so at the very beginning, Kesra, um, I think you mentioned that one of the sort of big employers, one of the sort of ideal end goals of a public history degree is to work for the government. Um, what sort, what sorts of jobs are there for public historians in say the government of Canada or local governments or, or what have you? Uh, more than you think, less than you hope. Uh, we were actually just um, in my class, we were actually just talking today with a fellow who um, works in the policy in um, the Crown and Indigenous Affairs Department, what used to be called the Indian Affairs Department. Mm -hmm. And um, his whole job is to go back through treaties and like uh, find historical context to help policymakers today make decisions that are better for everyone than the ones that were made in the past. So his whole job is to um, find the historical context and explain it in a way that is not a 30 page academic paper as I would have done two years ago, but in a five page memo that properly explains it and doesn't overcomplicate it. Um, there are um, Parks Canada is another large area where historians live. Mm -hmm. um, uh, any place with interpretation 
uh, historical interpretation, even if you don't think it's there, there's probably a little bit there. And a history degree can help, can give you some, a lot of transferable skills actually, that will let you um, transition into like data collection, um, archives and library studies are another val uh, venue we can go, but uh, yeah, we hide everywhere. Often in plain sight, it seems. Yeah. And I would think teaching too is another avenue, right? If people might take public history or interest in becoming history teachers. Yes, um, there are some teaching degrees you gotta get to uh, if you wanna teach full-time permanently, but yes, uh, some of us are planning on being teachers. Uh, so uh, I, I gotta ask, um, a while ago, I saw this uh, delightful little cartoon of a man in like a, you know, psychoanalyst um, sort of couch saying that, um, you know, we all know that people who don't learn about history are doomed to repeat it. But is it not also true that people who do learn about history are doomed to sit by powerlessly while everyone else repeats it? Is, is that something that you uh, have experienced? Anything? Do you have thoughts on that, especially given your interest in medical history and the events of the last year plus? I hate that Winston Churchill quote with a passion that rivals a thousand suns. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, those who don't know the history are doomed to repeat it. I, I believe it's attributed to Winston Churchill. It's, um, it's such a literal quote where people take it so, so literally. They think um, the past is, it's a straight circle that we just repeat back to the same things. But the context change, like um, you can never truly repeat the past. You can make decisions that you probably should not based on past context, mm -hmm. but um, you can never, those who don't know the history are not doomed to repeat it. They're doomed to not learn from historical mistakes and um, keep making the same mistakes. Um, without a grounding in history um, in almost any subject, uh, you don't know everything. Like. Uh, every form of humanities or social sciences has this enormous backlog of history to behind it that explains why things are the way they are and um, maybe why we can't change them or maybe why we really, really should. Yes, it's frustrating to see people not learn from the past, but uh, they're not literally repeating the past. They're just, they don't, I don't wanna say they don't know any better because that makes me sound like a parent scolding the entire public, <laughs> but uh, they don't have the proper context to make, decisions that you would if you knew everything that's mm -hmm. back there. And that's what historians are for. We're there to learn all that backlog and then explain it to you in a very long and overcomplicated manner that really just confuses you and makes you angry. <laughs> and so that's why you need the public historians to do it in a way that is less likely to make you bored and angry. Yeah, we're the coffee filter over that funnel. Gotcha. Great <laughs> analogy, by the way. Thank Great you. Analogy. Yeah, so I mean, it sounds like from what we've learned, public history is a, is a really broad field, but also kind of brings a very theoretical uh, program and gives it some practicality and applicability. Is that kind of like an accurate description? Yes, thank you. That's so much better than my rambling. <laughs> Not at all. No, no. I, uh, I think it's interesting because oftentimes as academics, we get ask like, what are you gonna do with that degree or how is that relevant? And I think like what you've shown us is that this can be very relevant and is to, well, not, I mean, certainly with COVID uh, to our, our, you know, our learnings today. Yeah, like that's a very good way to explain it. <laughs> 
Yeah, just also sort of thinking from the academic perspective, it, it sort of strikes me that, you know, talking about the history and context of history, I guess, is almost exactly what, it, let's say, like the literature review for a paper is supposed to do. So you are supposed to go over and um, take a look at where we've come from, what we've done in the past, so you don't make the same mistakes over and over too. So you don't, you know, just fall through in the same pitfalls and challenges and stumbling blocks that other people have already perhaps even overcome. Yeah. You would never read Frankenstein without knowing like that Mary Shelley was alive in the 1700s and that she was romantic. Like without that historical context, the book doesn't make a ton of sense. Without the historical context, you're missing so much of like what it makes Frankenstein a very good book. It's one of my favorites, by the way, that's why I'm bringing it up. But like, if you didn't know that she was trapped in a villa with Yates and Byron, you'd be like, oh, oh, that may, mm, that checks out. Wasn't she also like 19 years old when she wrote it? Oh yeah, she was the ultimate mega goth. I love her so much. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she, uh, she was trapped with her husband and it wasn't Yates, it was um, Byron, Percy Shelley and Byron, which is, um, oh, to use a horrible meme, the nightmare blunt rotation. <laughs> Could you explain that? <laughs> I think I need some context. My little brother sent me. <laughs> it's a who you would absolutely never ever want to be intoxicated with because they just be so wildly unbearable that you'd be like, okay, I gotta go outside. It's raining. We're in Genoa, but I gotta, I gotta get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and so she wrote Frankenstein to try to avoid all that. Uh, the common story is that it was a, a story writing contest because mm -hmm. they were all professional writers and uh, Byron wrote something that was probably wildly romantic and Percy Shelley wrote something that was probably wildly depressing and she came up with the genre of science fiction. So like, <laughs> queen. So I guess it's safe to say that uh, her mark on history has been somewhat more significant. Yes, uh, Percy Shelley is Mary Shelley's husband at this point. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I want to thank you very much for spending time with us here today. Um, we're about to wrap up, but before we do, uh, I was wondering if you'd like to give a shout out to any um, sort of public social media accounts. Any? Do you do any public history on, say, Twitter, for example, where people might be able to find you? Um, I don't. I just post pictures of my cats. <laughs> also, okay very too. good, very also important very work. Yes. Yeah. Um, probably best to find me on my Instagram. It's a mm -hmm. Baragalog. I think I gave you the spelling in the chat. So it's a B-A-R-A-G-A-L-O-G. Yes. Okay. We'll have that in the show notes as well. <laughs> Absolutely. For another podcast, we'll ask what that means. <laughs> uh, I heard the word Garagalog and I was like, yeah. <laughs> what is Garagalog? It's a product used to make mobile garages. A mobile, okay. Um, I'm afraid we don't have time to pursue that line of questioning. Uh, although I do wish it had come up earlier. Um, but Kestra Greer, thank you. Thank you very much for uh, being with us today and sharing so many interesting stories about um, all the historical lessons that we should learn from the past. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. 
You are welcome. Um, Garagalog, Kestra, whatever you go by, we are so happy you joined us today. You've been listening to GradCast, the podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western. Uh, we've been joined by Yaman Chen, Elizabeth Moller as host, and Kestra Greer as our amazing guru of all things public history. And if you want to find more episodes, you can do so by going to gradcast.ca. You can look us up on YouTube. You can look us up wherever you get your podcasts and maybe you've been inspired by the Garagalog or other things and you want to get in touch and tell us your own story. Please do so, gradcastradio at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a good night.